Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Journalism, the show where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Today, we hear from Brian Michael Goss, author of Rebooting the Herman and Chomsky Propaganda Model for the 21st Century. Goss's work reconsiders the legendary model in a present-day context using a series of case studies as his framework. Uh, before we get going on the book, uh, rebooting the Herman and Chomsky propaganda model in the 21st century, just tell us a little bit about your background and your research. Sure. Well, I work uh, at St. Louis University. I've been here since 2001. Um, I got my PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana, and um, my uh, concentration there is politics and media. So this book is very squarely within that. Um, but more generally, I work within the domain of mass media. So the main uh, channels of uh, media that I deal with are film and uh, journalism. And that seems rather incongruous insofar as films are you know, baldly fictional, uh, just about uh, you know, the vast majority of them. And then on the other hand, you have newspaper discourses, and they're supposed to be truthful. Nonetheless, I mean, the overarching um, concern you know, with regard to my teaching, with regard to my research, is uh, mass media. And um, you know, the uh, preeminent specialty that I have is critical approaches to journalism. Um, and there's been some spinoff to I've written things about blogs, about political cartoons, uh, and such. But um, what you have in this book is quite central to the interests that I've been pursuing and uh, exploring, um, you know, going back into the 90s and my training as a graduate student. So it's been 25 years or so since uh, since Edward Herman and, and Noam Chomsky came up with their model, and then the, f- the famous manufacturing consent. What, why why now uh, is is it time to to reconsider and, and maybe reboot their model? What about the current climate uh, inspired you to revisit this work? Okay, well, um, I think you know, there's two directions where that is concerned. I mean, one is you have a larger external world um, and the conditions that prevail within it, as well as you know what I'm doing as a writer. Well, where the first is concerned, uh, you know, the model was um, published in 1988. So if you read the book, I mean, a lot of their examples are drawn from the 1980s, things like the uh, surrogate attacks on Nicaragua, for instance, being a big part of uh, uh, that book. Um, and in the time since then, there's uh, several things that have changed in the world of considerable importance. And one is that it's no longer the Cold War, no longer the bipolar logics uh, that governed uh, the way in which the world was running for a long period after World War II, two generations, roughly uh, almost a half a century. Um, and also within this domain of what's going on in the external world, it has been what's sometimes referred to as the communications revolution. Well, when I was in graduate school, uh, we, uh, we even were able to joke about this at the time. At the start of our training, um, you know, the first uh, part of the uh, 90s, what was construed as new media was cable television, the VCR. So by the end of the decade, terrain was very different where that is concerned. And... Um, 
clearly we're still all getting our heads around what it is that's different, what it is that are the possibilities and the limitations as concerns uh, new media. So those are two very important things. I mean, one is the uh, political climate um, is very different from the fact that um, the Soviet Union is no longer in business, if you will, and also the uh, rise of uh, new media as well. So these are things that um, you know, demand some investigation. So you know, that didn't start in 2011, you know, roughly when I started writing the book, but nonetheless enough distance to um, try and assess uh, how these are playing out as they intersect with the model. The other thing is, you know, why was I writing it? Well, uh, it was also um, you know, the book Manufacturing Consent that you referred to uh, is one that had considerable impact on me. When I uh, read it, I was actually a graduate student in another discipline, experimental psychology. I was working with things like electroencephalograms, and I was so struck by the book that, um, you know, in short order, I changed my PhD program. So this is something, you know, a book that's had a considerable impact on me, manufacturing consent and the propaganda model. But I do feel like the uh, intersection of uh, time and place was uh, such that I could finally address this in a book-length fashion. So that was you know, the other um, uh, dimension of this uh, book. I mean, both the external world as well as my own situation that um, brought me to composing it. And that's interesting. So it sounds like there was a, a little bit of a, of a personal element as well. This is the book that drove you into a different graduate program. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, any kind of like work that people do along these lines and some investment of themselves um, in it. I mean, you know, you're spending a lot of time geeking away, doing the reading and uh, you know, reading things 15 times and so on. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, there's always um, that you know, which is in play with it and some kind of extension of yourself um, that's at stake uh, in that. But, um, you know, the other thing is um, you want to reach readers, you want to inform people. Uh, indeed, coming back to uh, manufacturing consent, I mean, that's the impact that it had on me was, you know, I went into another discipline. The thing that I was dedicating myself to studying shifted after I read the book and in very short order uh, as well. Now, one, I mean, you mentioned, you know, a number of the ways in which the climate and, and the industry and many things have changed since the original work mm-hmm. came out. Um, one of them I want to touch on now is, is how the industry has, has just become so globalized. And, you know, Herman and Chomsky were very much, it was very much an American centric or maybe, you know, and there was some Western European, some British model as well. How did you go about addressing the, the new global nature of media? Okay, well, one thing that's different, you know, as concerns uh, the way in which I conduct the case studies, and, you know, the original book, um, you know, it's mainly devoted to case studies. I mean, it's the first chapter that lays out the filters um, that are endemic into the, in the propaganda model, and thereafter they pursue case studies. I actually do uh, more with respect to talking about those filters. Hence, the way in which the book is organized is um, a large part of it uh, is called contexts, and how far does that, ex- uh, does that extend? Well, I'm holding a copy of the book here right now, and that's the first 90 pages of the book, is um, devoted to, in some ways, detailing the filters themselves, and then uh, starting page 93, um, through the uh, balance of the book, go into the case studies uh, of this. Now, one of those case studies is British media, and uh, in particular, the riots that uh, convulsed uh, England and London particularly uh, about two years ago in the summer of 2011. So, yeah, that is very clearly a move where very self-consciously I wanted to um, uh, take the model and try to expand it outward geographically. 
Um, and um, with respect to talking about the riots, I talked about them in terms of the us and them filter, the uh, binarization that occurs in the, narr- in the news narratives. The Chomsky and Herman also allude to, although I you know, also retrofit the filter in some measure as well. So that's one of the ways in which I try to you know, make the book have more of a, um, a global perspective, because they're original, yes. I mean, um, it's very strongly grounded in the performance of U.S. news media, albeit U.S. news media talking about events from around the world. But nonetheless, uh, a lot of emphasis uh, on the New York Times, um, in uh, Chomsky in particular, in his um, long corpus of work. Now, in that um, section of the book called Context as well, in terms of talking about media ownership, that necessarily brings in its train talking about uh, the degree to which um, the larger firms are also internationalizing as well. And um, one that's the most clear example of that, and particularly as concerns uh, news media, is News Corp, uh, Murdoch's uh, company, that is to say. It started in Australia, uh, moved in short order, you know, mainly in the 70s and 80s, to a large base in the United Kingdom, and uh, very clearly a prominent part of the landscape in the U.S. now, notably uh, Fox News being one of their uh, holdings. So, you know, that's very clearly a a company that, by design, um, or at least in practice, has um, expanded itself quite um, strikingly across the English-speaking world, um, also with considerable interest in penetrating further into Asia as well. So in all these respects, um, um... you know, self-consciously, I was uh, trying to uh, bring on board more international perspectives in terms of applying the model, also considering the political economy of news uh, as well, with News Corp referred to quite a lot in the course of the text. Great. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the structure of the book, and you brought it up, the, the idea of putting the contexts first. And, um, and going back and, and looking at the original manufacturing consent and, and the five filters, um, when, when you're in, in the planning stages of this book, and I know things you know sort of evolve as you as you get into them, um, how how did you go about you know wanting to you know address and, and look at you know the original five filters versus you know and then structure it with the I'm sort of stumbling over my own words here you know and then you know I guess addressing the old first and then you know saying to where we are going to where we are now and then you know gradually moving into the case studies. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, with regard to talking about the original model, um, you know, there was a need to uh, engage in some uh, retrofitting, to use that term that's used in the book, I just used it a moment ago, as well. Um, and I think perhaps the most obvious um, place where that arose was, again, they were writing in the 1980s, and they're not soothsayers, they're not um, psychics, they're not um, standing in the shoes of Nostradamus or something along these lines. <laughs> Um, so they didn't realize, in short order, just a couple of years after the book was published, Soviet Union, um, the uh, Eastern Bloc, was going to collapse. So they did put a lot of emphasis, and rightly so, given the climate of the time, on the Cold War, on the anti-communism uh, filter. Now, um, that doesn't really maintain so well now. There are people who still talk about um, communism, or more specifically anti-communism, um, <clears throat> accuracy in media. AIM, you know, they're a good example of this. I mean, they're really quite prehistoric um, with regard to that. But um, in large measure, the discourse has moved on from that. Hence, you know, that's where I um, had to do the most uh, work with respect to uh, patching together new filters, or a new filter in this case I call us and them. 
Now, in doing some revisiting of the model, I mean, you know, they've uh, talked about anti-extremism and so on, but I wanted to uh, try to put the uh, that filter into the most abstracted, into the most generalized uh, framework. And that I took to be us and them. You know, the differentiation of um, you know, what characterizes us, our goals, our actions in the world, and them from whom we are taken to be differentiated and distinct. And that also you know, applies with regard to our allies versus uh, you know, people who see it as enemies as well. So that's some of the work that had to be done with regard to taking the original model and um, you know, doing some updating on it. And you know, I went, rather than going more specific, I went to more generalized and more abstract. I think that was the most important change. But also, you know, the, um, over the past quarter of a century, it's not been you know, some kind of inert environment. Flack, for instance, which, if you read the original um, you know, uh, opening chapter of uh, Manufacturing Consent, Flack, they deal with kind of uh, more of an afterthought. Um, I mean, they have, I'm sure, more to say about it, but they tended to um, kind of treat it as a more minor uh, filter. Um, I'm actually much more interested in Flack in part because this new media environment has actually, I'm positing, gone a long way toward intensifying uh, the production of flack. What do I mean by this? Well, it's Dan Gilmore, who um, is one of the more uh, strong advocates of new media. He wrote the um, book called We the Media. And what he said in this book was, he was quoting someone else, but uh, what he said in this book was, it's one of the uh, main points he has, with the advent of new media, we can fact-check your ass. We can fact-check your ass, is what he says. That's true. So when somebody in media says something that's wrong, they can get fact-checked by all of these people who are you know, hooked up to their computers and uh, so on. But what also happens is we can harass your ass as well. That we can generate, have that many more channels to engage in sometimes uh, you know, contentious or tendentious or false kinds of discourses about what somebody has said as well. And a lot of that amounts to flat. So that's something that I'm um, you know, also very interested in. It's treated in a more, you know, as being a more minor kind of um, filter in um, you know, the original 1988 formulation. So I put more emphasis on it, indeed, I mean, it's something I want to you know, investigate and explore more in the future as well as flat. So it's a very interesting uh, topic, uh, that is to say. Um, so again, that was less um, doing retrofitting as concerns the original model, more a matter of stress and emphasis uh, as well. Because I think you know, Flack is something that is uh, really appreciated um, in the years since they published the original model. Just to finish this answer somewhat long, you know, just the other day, Lynn um, Cheney uh, announced that she's going to run in the primaries for um, uh, Senate from Wyoming. Um, against the incumbent, which of course is an uphill fight. But um, what was striking was, you know, if you go by Dan Gilmore, we can fact check your ass. People would be you know, more likely just to speak the truth if they're going to get fact checked you know, from all different directions. Um, from what I read of her um, announcement, which is actually videotaped, if she put it up on YouTube, as I recall, she was like launching one fib after another. One falsehood after another. Things like, uh, you know, the White House was directing the uh, IRS in terms of their reviews of different organizations. So, you know, she's not afraid, it would seem to me, of having her arse fact-checked where this is concerned. 
Um, so again, I mean, these are some of the um, um, some of the ways in which new media is not played out in the way in which people expected that it would on this score. And uh, new media being something that has also been uh, instrumentalized for the purposes of generating and intensifying more fun. So that's um, those are some of the considerations that went into. Um, how do you take the filter and start applying it to the case studies and also reworking the filter as necessary for the uh, contemporary moment? Sure, and I want to get into one of those case studies, the one of the, the New York Times uh, account of the Bush administration in the UN and leading up to the 2003 um, invasion. Um, you know, sure. Using those updated filters, and, and please take your time with this answer because I'm, I'm really fascinated by, by what you're going to say. Uh, what, um, how, how does... How did you? How did I'm sorry. How did you apply these updated filters to that particular case study, and what did you learn? Sure. Well, that's something that, um, in some form or another, I've written about different uh, moments within that story leading up to the invasion of Iraq um, previously. Um, not anything as you know such sustained attention as that uh, dedicated chapter of the topic, but I you know, pulled off bits and pieces of it um, in various other kinds of uh, scholarship, you know, different articles uh, that I've written as well. Now, in this case. Um, However, I do think that it was um, more the you know, old-fashioned aspects of the um, uh, propaganda model that came to bear on that. Most notably, sourcing. Um, you know, that is to say that um, in terms of the, uh, the people whom the New York Times consulted with respect to getting the quotations, the backgrounders, the facts, uh, the interpretations of events, they stayed very tightly within an elite circle in doing so. Um, so consequently, one of the more striking parts and more, you know, um, really aggravating aspects of the discourse in the Times was when uh, administration officials made assertions about the legal basis for uh, invading Iraq, saying we already have the uh, justifications from the United Nations that we need in hand. It's already been voted on, Resolution 1493, and so on and so forth. And these are things that were just you know, straightforwardly false, and they could have consulted lawyers who would have been able to uh, tell them this in short order. But the main thing that I saw going on there was with regard to where were they getting their information that was shaping the uh, news narratives, was the oxygen on which these news narratives were uh, uh, living. And it was, you know, from officialdom, almost uh, entirely across the board, with a heavy measure of emphasis on administration officials as well, who were often taken as, you know, having the final word. I mean, you know, these were objective reporters, so of course, and they do cite people with some different views. But, um, you know, it's also the case that they tended strongly to come around to what the administration sources said as well. Now, by contrast, um, in the chapter I mentioned, there was like one article, one article out of more than 100 that I found from early 2003, where, you know, they actually subject the administration claims to some kind of scrutiny. Uh, the article was uh, Burns's article about the um, the alleged drone. Now, the Iraqis said that this was um, something to do with agricultural uh, surveillance, and uh, the administration 
including the State Department, was uh, positing this was some kind of dangerous weapon. Well, Burns, a reporter, actually looked at the drone, determined that you know it was made out of wood, that it had tape uh, holding parts of it together, that um, you know it seemed to have what uh, the Iraqis were stating as being a, uh, a radius of 10 or 12 kilometers in which it could operate. And Burns' article is rather scathing. He's saying that, you know, here we have this uh, fact sheet from the State Department, and here we're looking at the thing itself, and these things are from different uh, universes. But that was a very rare instance. In fact, that was the single most clear instance where the reporter, you know, just didn't take what sources were saying, but actually tried to adjudicate what is true and found the administration claims to be highly lacking. Well, they've been doing that all the time, and they weren't. Um, you know, that is you know, the baseline point. The information was out there. And it's really embarrassing to say this. It is truly embarrassing to take note of this. The very nasty government of Iraq at that period of time was telling the truth to a greater extent than Bush and the people around him. Let that sink in for a moment. Let that sink in. You know, the seedy you know, dictatorship was actually achieving a level of truth not seen in the Beltway. Now, that's remarkable. The reporters could have um, gone far further in that direction uh, with respect to uh, cross-examining their sources. Okay, so that was a um, you know, pretty straightforward application of the, um, uh, the sourcing uh, filter. The other one that was in play there, too, is the us and them uh, filter. Okay, what about that? Well, you know, it's not a surprise to me that um, you know, U.S. news media is going to be you know, wedded to uh, viewpoints that come out of the U.S. I mean, it would be strange if they weren't. I mean, this is just fundamental way in which people behave. But nonetheless, um, in covering these stories from abroad, particularly this one, or ones that, you know, implicate um, invasion or international uh, uh, aggression um, <clears throat> that are, you know, at stake with, uh, within it, you know, in those instances, um, these us-them uh, kind of discourses, you know, whereby... You know, you highlight uh, the assumption that you're always uh, right, that um, you know, your leaders are you know, far-reaching visionaries and so on. You know, in these instances, that uh, tendency toward us and them you know, leads to places such as the disasters that are engendered in invading Iraq, partly for the U.S. and uh, mainly for the people there, uh, by the way. So again, that's one of the other things that I saw as a concomitant of this us-them filter was reporters... And even, you know, people who are steeped in and trained in the objective methodologies engaging in some instances in these almost embarrassing kinds of sycophantic discourses about the head of the government in the U.S. Um, and you know, this, in some ways, being symmetrical with the degree of denigration um, of Iraq's leadership. Well, nasty guy, nasty regime. But that does not bring in its train this symmetry, this assumption that you know, we're led by these public warriors, uh, these people of uh, untrammeled truth uh, and such. So yeah, I thought that was um, one of the manifestations of us and them um, on that score. And uh, with the uh, result of less scrutiny, less um, investigation of the truth value, of the uh, comments, discussions, backgrounders that uh, people in Washington are giving. So that's, uh, I think, you know, <clears throat> how the filters play out with regard to that chapter and with regard to the uh, discourse uh, in 2003 in anticipation of invading Iraq. 
And sticking with there's the us them. Uh, sticking with just the the us for a second. Sure. You mentioned there there's some you know different applications of the term us. Um, mm-hmm. How does the term us apply toward the media and the relationship toward it, toward its ownership <laughs> and toward its advertisers and funding? And not so much an us them in terms of you know us America them Soviet Union, but in terms of us who you know who butters our bread. Right. Well, that um, I don't address that very often. Um, just you know, a couple of words about us and them too. I mean, um, this is concept I've worked with quite a lot. As I mentioned, um, you know, my area is mass media. Something I wrote uh, pretty recently was about a TV show. You know, I used to watch as a kid. By the way, it was already in syndication, but uh, Mission Impossible. Do you remember the show? Of course, yes. Yeah, I mean the TV shows. So it's a lot different than you know, the films. But again, I mean, how, how did us and them play out in that? Well, you know, we, you know, the um, the agents, they never used violence. They used simulations. You know, they would like do a chop to the back of the neck, but um, you know, they didn't shoot people. They didn't engage in you know violent behavior. But they did. That was one of the things that differentiated us and them. We used simulation cleverness, outsmarting in this. Um, you know, this chess game of uh, espionage, whereas they, they're coercive. They're the violent ones. Now, um, what you're saying about um, that other way in which us and them might play out with regard to thinking about the political economy, well, then, you know, the, the media is not very self-reflexive on that score. Uh, the Kurtz, uh, the chapter that deals with um, uh, Kurtz, Howard Kurtz, mm-hmm. brings this up uh, as well. I mean, you know, he talks about uh, you know the different discourses people engage in. It says very little about um, uh, the industry itself. Um, and another contrast of that that I can think of, and rather surprisingly, comes from uh, just a couple of days ago in the International Herald uh, Tribune, which is, of course, the international arm of the New York Times. And, you know, it's very widely available here in Madrid. So I'm writing about this uh, presently. And um, over this past weekend, they had an article, I thought a very erudite one, from uh, someone in Turkey. And uh, what he was claiming was, in Turkey, the problem that we have is that we have a very strongly privatized media system. Never mentions the U.S., but of course, you'd say much the same about the U.S. And the problem is that there's no um, heavy-handed censorship that is really... uh, the vexing our media system. Rather, it's the complicity between the uh, state and the upper reaches of the private sector. People have a lot at stake in different regulations and allow them to own more or cross ownership or things along these lines. That's what he was saying was really stifling was the private censorship. Uh, you know, the way in which um, not just you know through chilling effects, but even you know firing people if they're not going along with the line of the private sector, and in particular, it's uh, moguls um, with very large stakes in uh, expanding out their ownership. So again, I mean, um, you know, that might be construed as us with regard to um, uh, the newspaper industry, but it very seldom gets covered. And in this case. In the uh, International Herald Tribune, I'd be utterly shocked if they published something like that. But the U.S. Uh, news media, about the extent to which um, a country where the laws are very enabling as concerns journalism, nonetheless has such constraint with respect to where journalists go. But they do publish the article about how this plays out in Turkey. A case I know less about, but uh, what you're saying is very familiar from uh, investigating and examining uh, U.S. news media and the way in which the private sector uh, also, um, you know, clearly does some uh, very good uh, journalism, but also has its 
commitments and its uh, ways of circumscribing and uh, subjectifying its reporters such that they go in some directions, not others, or only so far in given directions. One of those is not to uh, explore very much about their political economy in which they themselves work. Sure. I have a, there's a faculty member here who said that, you know, the, the key to producing a, a you know, a book that can really get some traction is about 90% hard work and research and writing and talent and 10% just that right kick of a little bit of luck. Uh-huh. And, and so I was fascinated when you were going into Kurtz that you also contrasted him with Glenn Greenwald, okay. who who just timing-wise could not have been more perfect for your book, You know his, his involvement in Eric Snowden and everything else. Um, and if, if you could, just describe that the, how you played those two you know, sort of off each other, Kurtz and Glenn, and, uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, in terms of, of, of their approaches to, you know, traditional and then sort of maybe the new practices of media. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, um, and you're right as well. I mean, uh, Greenwald is, um, you know, in some measure, becoming a new story in himself uh, as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's um, something that had the germs of an idea of making that contrast for some period of time. It you know, happens to fit very squarely into... Um, you know, what the book is about. And um, what I was proposing the book to, to Peter Lang, I mean, that's what the reviewer um, suggested as well, was, you know, more attention to new media uh, above and beyond this. I and mean, I you know, wanted to put in a chapter that, you know, to cover it uh, throughout the book. But um, where Greenwald is concerned, um, you know, I've been reading his um, uh, blog for some time, I think, you know, somewhere since about, uh, say, 2007, um, I wouldn't say, you know, that I'm um, fully uh, in register with everything he says. I mean, he's much more of a libertarian, I believe, than I identify myself as being. I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but very clearly that's the base uh, of his um, you know, thoughts about, um, well, he's trained as a lawyer, about the law, as well as, you know, more generally as well. But, um, you know, this is concerned, um, again, I mean, if you're going to do a case study, you want to have some kind of contrast. And certainly in their discourses, you know, the contrast is really stark as well. And the other thing is, you know, you don't want to pick on, you know, uh, writers or media organs that are really not very highly respected to begin with. Sure. And um, in the case of Kurtz, you have somebody who's recognized as being, um, and there's a lot of quotations that I marshal out to evidence this. Somebody's considered to be the pinnacle of um, self-reflexive uh, media criticism from within the mainstream media. Uh, but nonetheless, you, know, you can see the extent to which um, you know, Greenwald, and he does it very self-consciously, I think, as well, plays out the extent to which he's trying to puncture all of these um, points on which main, uh, mainstream media agrees. And I think perhaps the most uh, basic of these is the extent to which uh, you know, people, by the time they rise to very high levels in different professions, oftentimes uh, internalize a lot of the prejudices and assumptions uh, of those organizations. In the case of news media, and you know, Greenwald's not the only person who's said or implied this, that's what I heard again, his um, ethnography from some decades ago also has a lot of uh, uh, evidence along these lines. But um, you know, what happens with these regard to these people who reach, uh, you know, reach the top of the profession in journalism is they often start to see themselves as being people in very close proximity uh, in many respects to the people whom they're covering. People the commanding he- commanding heights of the state and the private sector are the same people who live basically up the street from them, who, you know, their kids uh, know each other and things along these lines. So they have a, 
uh, cast of mind, a way of looking out and gazing upon the world that has many of the same assumptions embedded within. So that's a lot of what uh, Greenwald is saying. There's a lot of what he uh, tries to puncture as well uh, as concerns his uh, media critiques, the extent to which news media, particularly at its most elite and most high-profile, most prestige manifestations, has really become uh, an annex of um, these elite people, is this elite class. Perhaps the subjugated sector of that class, but nonetheless, uh, part and parcel to it, that's where they position themselves. It's not out of, you know, uh, malevolence toward other people. It's just a very, you know, organic question of, you know, what their paycheck is, where they live, who they associate with, and all that comes along with that in terms of sculpting a person in depth. So, again, that's... You know, with Bourdieu and uh, William Ryder, these are some of the people who I also bring on board, you know, with testimony in terms of that, uh, these claims. So, um, yeah, so where that is concerned, um, again, it's a very strong contrast that you get between uh, Kurtz and Greenwald, um, between new media and um, old media with regard to how they reflect on media performance itself. So we're starting to wind down. I do have just a couple of more questions. One, you know, with this, there's this, you know, talk of, of new media or internet media sort of being this revolutionary type of populist type of deal. But you know, with the propaganda model also being rebooted in, in these times, how how does the propaganda model? How do we you know, roll it back to help see you know the new media really reach the potential that some people see it being able to reach? Yeah, I mean, um, on this score, I mean, we talked about Greenwald a moment ago. Greenwald started out, I think it was in 2005, and he had, um, you know, started off 30 readers of his blog, and I think more of the stress then was on legal issues, uh, particularly um, things concerning, um, well, things he's working on uh, presently as well, surveillance. Um, and uh, he um, got linked to by some other blogs, and uh, within short order, within about a week, he was up to 30,000 uh, readers. This is according to Eric Bullard's um, account of you know, Greenwald's uh, trajectory on the score. So clearly, this is something that didn't happen in the past uh, with regard to um, you know, somebody being able to uh, command an audience and uh, even you know, very substantial audiences in a short order after putting out their shingle as a commentator. And, you know, Greenwald is not a whole newspaper out of himself, but he's quite prodigious, um, you know, for a large part of the uh, past decade. I mean, he's, you know, writing 1,000, 2,000 words per day uh, as well. Very substantial um, kind of interventions, that's to say. But, you know, still not a uh, newspaper out to himself. And that's one of the points that I make in the, uh, the book as well. So a lot of the um, successful bloggers, you know, from the previous decade, a lot of the uh, successful entities, you know, the longer they stick around, the more they start to get uh, absorbed by or morph into more conventional uh, mainstream media. Uh, the case of uh, Greenwald, uh, he went to a internet daily salon. Now he's with, um, on the platform of um, uh, the London-based Guardian. Or something like Talking Points Menu, um, sorry, Talking Points Menu, I don't see much about that, but it's become more of a conventional kind of um, web page, um, kind of a daily bulletin with a number of people uh, writing for it, uh, and so on. So, um, where this is concerned, I mean, the question is uh, how is new media going to help to um, subvert uh, the propaganda model? Well, part of the evidence that I cite is that it's not doing that at all, that reporters are actually getting overworked because they now have a bigger news hole to, um, to fill, so that new media, in some ways, is actually accelerating 
um, the uh, capture of uh, news production um, <clears throat> within the uh, orbit of the uh, propaganda model. So I don't think it's technology you know, really that is going to uh, be a, a savior on this score. Rather, um, you know, I think what is uh, needed is, well, more reporters. Um, reporters now are very well trained, uh, that is. Um, when I was at University of Illinois, the kind of rigor of the training of the journalists was indeed very impressive. Uh, William Grider, um, or I should say it's um, Lance Bennett, one of the uh, best um, uh, critics of journalism, who actually phrases it is that journalists are better trained than they ever were. And this is certainly squares my observation as well. But we need more of them. As it stands, working in private sector media, um, you know, the number of reporters working on uh, papers, on news organizations, is much less than it was even a few years ago. So they have fewer reporters that are filling a bigger news hole uh, as concerns and this bigger news hole that's been occasioned by uh, new media. So that's uh, a very straightforward one. More reporters are needed. I think also in terms of upsetting the uh, propaganda model, um, we need, um, I think, um, to shift the emphasis from objectivity reporting to telling the truth. And these are not the same thing. Objectivity means that two people said two different things and you report them both. The job is done. Well, no, it isn't. Not with respect to the truth. Because one of those people might not be telling the truth. Or one of them might have a greater you know, purchase on the truth, greater uh, truth value than the other does. And that's what reporters should be concerned with, is a positive. Uh, finding out, ascertaining what the truth is and not just stopping with the methodology, the technique of objectivity, which in a lot of respects can you know, uh, be quite corrosive to the telling of the truth. Now, there are instances where you know, objectivity does you know, work the way in which it's envisioned of working, but also consider, too, that um, you know, people who are unscrupulous political operators, knowing that they're facing objective reporters, in, in fact, it incentivizes saying things that aren't true or they're very slippery. Because, you know, their claims are going to get handled probably in the even-handed way uh, that the objectivity doctrine demands uh, that will allow them to get away with it, or at least for some period of time. You know, we, of course, you know, timeliness is very important to them where this is concerned. So, yeah, I'd like to see uh, truth being enthroned, and not the technique of objectivity it would be another um, uh, way of um, pushing back against the uh, propaganda model. Um, so, yeah, those are two very basic things. You know, what is uh, the objective reporting? Truth is what it should be. And more reporters as well, which also might be more news organizations on top of that um, uh, as well. Indeed, as I've noted, um, you know, private sector news sometimes you know, produces very good uh, news performance. Um, it's also the case that, uh, you know, living here in Europe, you see that there's a much stronger tradition of public media. Now, media is funded by the state. You know, if you have a very dysfunctional state, of course, um, you have the possibility that that news media is going to be uh, nothing more than another arm of the state. But um, in countries that have mature institutions, um, like Western Europe, like the U.S., you can also expect that if you have news organizations, you give them the funds, and then you'd allow professional people to run those organizations and be hands-off with that as concerned. And you don't have that in the U.S. I mean, you know, look at one of the state universities, like University of Iowa, uh, for professional people to run the organization. 
and, you know, it's not like the governor like dictates what's on the syllabus or something like this. Nobody would uh, could imagine such a happening. And that's how it should be with uh, media. State can give the money. You have more competition where this is concerned, more points of view in circulation, but, you know, staying out of the content dollar. And, you know, what that's concerned, you look at the BBC. I mean, it's one of the, well, they've had scandals recently with regard to bad behavior, egregious behavior. Um, by some of their um, uh, presenters who um, you know, were actually predatory. But in terms of the, uh, its presence and its news gathering, it's one of the best projections that Britain has outside of its uh, territory and its state-funded news. And that's how they basically do it. They get the uh, money and then professionals run the organization. They don't become mouthpieces of the parties or the prime minister. So like, these are some ways in which... Um, uh, you know, news performance can be uh, improved in some very straightforward uh, ways and pushed back against the uh, propaganda model. So where do you go from here? What's, what's next for your work and your research? Well, um, the uh, book, um, you know, was substantially finished about a year ago in August. I was finishing it up. The uh, Kurtz and Greenwald chapter was the uh, last one that I was writing before we started classes. Um, and then, yeah, during the fall, I was shortening the book. I had to, you know, you have to fit in within the uh, contractual arrangement of so many words, and then you have to uh, format it. That was a lot of the spring. Um, so, again, it's kind of a long gestation where that is concerned. So, what did they do when it was all finished in the book came out last month? Well, I started writing about. Spanish films, um, horror films like Rack, uh, which is a well-known horror film from uh, Spain. I started writing about that director, Kwame uh, Pellegrino, and right now we have been invited to write something about uh, Pedro Navarre, um, which I'm just finishing. And the other thing I'm working on concurrently is what I mentioned, um, International Herald Tribune. So what about that? Well, it's New York Times International Arm, and um, how would I describe it? Well, there's a lot of us and them there. Let me just tell you a story. I think I might, uh, when I write this up and send it off to a journal, I might start off with this one. But um, you might know that last summer, you know, in order to raise his profile as an international statesman, Mitt Romney, sorry, Willard Mitt Romney, let's call him by his real name, uh, he um, was doing his international tour. <laughs> he went to Britain, and he started, um, you know, saying things that very straightforwardly were construed as insulting. That is to say, you know, the Olympics are going to go off, you know, these kind of things. Because uh, it was right before the Olympic Games, and he was voicing some doubt that they could actually um, get them up and going, and so on. Well, this is very badly received in Britain, uh, as you uh, might expect. The thing I'm positing is the International Herald Tribune does this every day. Every day they spend, um, you know, many pages pointing out all the corruption, all the ineptitude, all the bozo clownishness, all of the ungovernability in every other part of the world. But in the US, well, you know, it's very different. The parties might, you know, they have different points of view, but they come together. They craft out agreements. They hammer out the laws. That's what we do. You don't find that elsewhere. Well, I'm being a little bit um, glib when I say that, but nonetheless, this us and them very strongly guides their news narratives. Um, Well, it's easy to say that, but the point is that... um, you know, thus far, I've um, accumulated a body of about 200,000 words, about 200 articles, and I've got to start shaping it into the article. And that's going to be at the base of it. There's evidence in that claim that us and them very strongly drives how it is that uh, IHT, International Herald Tribune, um, conjures up this external world for its readers. And in doing so, again, this us and them necessarily, them are never as good as we are. 
Well, the book is Rebooting the Herman and Chomsky Propaganda Model in the 21st Century. The author is Brian Michael Goss. Professor Goss, thank you for joining us. Okay, my pleasure. You've been listening to New Books and Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Rebooting the Herman and Chomsky Propaganda Model, written by Brian Michael Goss at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening.